0: And have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. Tonight we turn to the seventh letter of the seven letters to the seven churches that Jesus commissioned to be sent, in which he shares with his church what is on his heart for each individual and in particular congregation, what he cares about, what he loves to see, what he desires to see changed. It's uh, fascinating as we approach this last letter uh, how uh, in, in these letters, uh, so many of these churches are, are mixed. Uh, in most of the letters, there are positive things that Jesus commends as well as negative things that uh, he uh, condemns or rebukes and wants to see changed. Uh, most churches, most of the seven churches here and most churches have significant problems the church is a hospital for sin sick people who Jesus is making well and will present faultless in glory but not faultless on this earth and uh, so most churches uh, have problems every Christian has their own set of trials and temptations and sins and so we can be a frustration to one another In two of these seven churches, however, uh, he rebukes nothing. Not because they are perfect churches, but one, the the church at Smyrna is the suffering church. And we saw how in the midst of a church that was so um, deeply in pain and trouble, he doesn't bother them with their problems as sinners. He just comes to help them. And then uh, we even saw the church at Philadelphia, though it's weak, he doesn't criticize them for it, but he does say, you have an open door and I can be the power that enables you to do ministry. Uh, In two churches, he does not rebuke, uh, but there is one church that receives no single word of commendation, and that is the church at Laodicea, which we study tonight. Not a single word to commend them. This is not just a weak church needing strength. This is a troubled church needing true life in Christ. Let me invite you to look at Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning... Of God's creation I know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth for you say I am rich I have prospered and I need nothing says to the churches amen this is god's word may he write it on our hearts tonight somebody said that the only good thing in laodicea is the church's thoroughly good opinion of itself (laughs) it was a church that evidently was very impressed with itself in a city That was impressed with itself. It was a very impressive community. Let me just give you some background context that actually plays in and out of this letter. Uh, uh, Laodicea is in the Lycus Valley with Colossae 11 miles east and a city called Areopolis six miles to the north. It it was the the center of roads built from Ephesus to the interior of Asia, as well as from Pergamum in the north to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's in a crossroads to the Mediterranean and to the interior of Asia. And it was a leading financial uh, banking center wealthier than any other city in its region. In fact, we talked about previously in another letter that that a a massive earthquake had hit in A.D. 17 that had damaged and destroyed many cities. Uh, It had been damaged as well, and the government helped them rebuild it. But another earthquake in A.D. 60 came along and damaged the city severely. But the city fathers declined Roman financial support to rebuild because they had all the money they needed themselves. They were so wealthy, they needed no care uh, from others. They simply said, no thanks. We don't need you. The uh, historian Tacitus writes, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. Uh, it was a city uh, that was uh, famous for its black soft wool. It was an exporter of soft black Wool, it was a city that had a world-famous medical school, especially uh, one in which specialized eye care took place. They had discovered some kind of ointment to apply to the eye, and many people came from, uh, from far away to get treated there. And one other uh, fascinating thing that plays into this letter is that the Lycus River, which ran through the city, has been described as turbid with white mud, nauseous, and undrinkable the neighboring city of Colossae to the east was watered by a cold mountain stream and Areopolis to the north was uh, sitting on a hot natural spring, which believe, many believe had medicinal qualities. But Laodicea obtained its water through an aqueduct running from a hot spring located five miles away because the river was undrinkable. But that, that water that came from the hot spring, though it started out scalding hot, By the time it entered the aqueduct and got to the city, it had become filled with calcium carbonate and uh, having traveled five miles was lukewarm and barely drinkable. And Jesus picks up on all these images about a church in a city. Doesn't he know them well and the place where they live? He picks up all these images and uses them as illustrations because they get it. And so here you have the the worst of the seven churches, and yet Jesus reaches out his hands to them in love, and he writes them a letter saying, I love you. And he tells them their problem, and he gives them a prescription. And so let's think about this letter together in the first place. Notice how he describes himself in verse 14, then how he describes their problem in 15 through 17, and the prescription he gives beginning at verse 18 to the end. Beginning, though, in verse 14 with himself, he says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. What's he saying about himself, friends? (laughs) He's reminding them that he is the amen, the word that Jesus will use to say, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. The word which means what I'm affirming is certain. And now he says, I am that one. I am certain. I am credible. The the things, the very hard things, when he says to them, you are wretched and pitiful, poor, blind and naked. He's saying, "I, I know this about you. I'm not misguided about you. You can depend on me. I have it right here. And I am the faithful and true witness to you. Uh, I am the, the, the word here is used for, for martyr. Perhaps he's reminding them of his zeal for them. I am the faithful witness to God who in zeal for the Lord went all the way to the point of death. Though you, he will say. Have not had that kind of zeal for me. I had that kind of zeal for my father. And for your soul. He's reminding them. He is in other words. He's the fountain. From which the zeal that they need will flow. And he is the beginning of God's creation here. Now now don't misunderstand that passage though. Our Jehovah's Witness friends. Following the 4th century Arians. Have mistaken verses like that and others. To think That the text is saying that Jesus himself has a beginning. that, That he is not eternal God, but that he came into being as perhaps the first created thing. But that is not the meaning of the beginning of God's creation here. That's not what it's referring to. We know that the rest of the Bible makes abundantly clear that, as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is is as eternal as God is eternal. Because Jesus is God. Now what this means is that he is the origin or source of God's creation. He is the fountain from which all of God's creation flows. And he again I think is saying to them. Get from me what I am calling you to. I am calling you to zeal. Get it from me. All your resources are in me. You're poor, but I am rich. He's saying all of that here, I think. And then he describes their problem, as we've hinted at in verse 15 through 17. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot, he says. Would that you were either cold or hot, but you're lukewarm, he says to them. Now, Jesus is using words for freezing cold and boiling hot. And the question we have to ask is, what is it that God's looking for? Clearly, he makes that... uh, More pointedly clear later on when he says in verse 19, be zealous. Uh, He is interested in uh, zeal, which comes also from the root word for hot. In contrast to their lukewarmness. Now he may be saying, uh, I want you to be either cold, like the refreshingly cold springs of Colossae. Or I want you to be boiling hot like the hot medicinal hot springs of Areopolis. But because you're neither of those things, you're lukewarm. I'm not pleased. So he's taking cold and hot there as both positives. Or he may be saying, rather, that I wish you were cold like the opposite of hot. Cold as in no life, no religion, no interest, total rejection, total hard-hearted, cold-heartedness. Or... Hot-hearted, hot-hearted, zeal. Would that you were one or the other, but not a mixture. Uh, would that you were not half-hearted. He may be saying that. So he's saying, if don't take a cold heart and think that you can just add a little heat that you draw off the Christians around you. Or by adding a little Jesus and think that I'm pleased with that. Or don't take the hot zealous heart and then let it get mixed with the cold uh that quenches the heat the cold of the, the world and the love for the world and and think that that's okay that's not what i want is for you to be zealous jesus is saying in heart to have a, a heart that's uh affectionate a heart that's Uh, purposeful a heart that that says one thing i ask of the lord this is what i seek that i may dwell in the house of the lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the lord and to seek him in his temple that's what zeal looks like it looks like the zeal that jesus had when in his earthly ministry he went into his father's house and out of love for the father's kingdom And grief at the way it was being ruined by the money changers in the temple courts. He overturned the money changing temples and he drove them out of the house. Because zeal for the Lord's house consumed him. Zeal is important in our relationship with God. It's true that zeal without knowledge is bad. The Bible rebukes that you think of the apostle paul before he's the apostle paul when he was zealous for judaism but in his zeal he directed against the church and those who believed in jesus and he sought to destroy to imprison to persecute and so he was zealous but but not according to knowledge he was misguided in his zeal that's bad you can be misguided in the direction of your zeal for god Uh, like taking of swords to coerce conversions. Or you can be zealous for other things that substitute for God. You can be zealous for SEC football. Zealous for uh, bowl game championships. You can be zealous for all kinds of things. But but I want you to hear this. Zeal is not a personality type. What Jesus is asking for here is not that calm-natured accountants need to become, you know, hand-raising, eye-closing, uh, you know, uh, boisterous, uh, loquacious, gregarious people who just always talk about how passionate they are. This is not what he's talking about here. It's not a. It's not a personality type. We're not looking for people to begin to bounce off the walls with excitement. But neither is zeal unreasoning, unthinking, unintelligent passion. Zeal is thoughtful passion, wholehearted devotion. It's good, and it's an integral part of love. When you love someone, when a a man loves his wife, uh, he doesn't sit back coolly and just watch her work. But he moves toward her. He delights to be with her. He dates her. He he romances her. He wants to spend time with her. He wants to know her and have her know him. That's the way that love is designed to move. And and the Bible would have us... uh, be unconstrained in our love for the lord zeal says i do love the lord and i want to love him more i uh, know him and i want to know him more Uh, i see jesus lifted high on a cross for me and i am thankful that he took my place and i treasure him i treasure him and i want to treasure him more and i want others to treasure him more that's what zeal is like that's what god is looking for in his people but here in laodicea he found a church that was just limp tepid flabby half-hearted listless indifferent to jesus and so in verse 16 jesus says because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth he says you make me want to vomit this church is like a three-week-old starbucks latte that you set on the windowsill and you came back to thinking there's some good coffee in there and took that sit we just were like a sam adams you left out in the sunshine too long and then thought i'll get refreshed but there was no refreshment to be found and yet, listen, I know I mean that I mean this Jesus using this language is is hard to hear a church that that makes him want to vomit, and yet notice the grace here he doesn 't say, "I have spit you out of my mouth he hasn 't done it yet he 's in fact giving them a word of grace and salvation about how they might change uh, he 's being very kind to them and in a moment he 'll reiterate his love for them and so Uh, jesus describes their problem now what causes lukewarmness we might ask before we look at the prescription what causes lukewarmness and in this church it seems to be both self-sufficiency and self-deception notice in verse 17 what they're saying they're saying i'm rich i've prospered i need nothing The pride of Laodicea was infectious and the Christians there caught the plague of it saying I am rich and I've gotten my riches and evidently they were saying I don't really need the Lord. It's perhaps because of the material blessing of the culture in which they live these wealthy Christians were content to have the world's goods instead of the riches of God in Christ. Maybe their wealth had made them apathetic and uninterested in spiritual things. Wealth can do that. It can, it can lull you to sleep. You can go to bed every night and saying, I have all that I need. Or maybe the prospect of getting more wealth is what leads us astray. The Bible says it's not wealth that is fundamentally bad. Wealth is a good thing. Created things are good things. But it is the love of money. Which is the root of all kinds of evil. Maybe it's the desire to be rich. Which makes this church apathetic to God. A taste of poverty can be good for our souls. A taste of poverty can be like eating the truth of our spiritual poverty before God. So that we begin to hunger and thirst. And so we might ask the question has the latest recession been good for your soul has the latest economic condition in the United States of America made you more determined to be rich in this world no matter what it costs to your soul or has it made you lean more on the Lord and that you have found him to be sweet has this recession not hurt your account at all And so you're sitting back with your hands folded across your chest, thinking, look at the fortress I have built for myself. I'm untouchable. Then be warned, Jesus says. Those who say I need nothing have lost sight of the gospel, have lost sight of Christ. And so they were self-sufficient, self-satisfied, spiritually bankrupt, and self-deluded, they simply do not see it this way. And so Jesus goes on to say, don't you realize that you are wretched and pitiable and poor, blind and naked? Don't you, don't you know this about yourself? Don't you see that you need mercy? Don't you see that you have nothing you can contribute to God to get His wealth? Don't you see that you are blind and, and that you cannot even see the kingdom apart from His grace? Very pointed language Jesus is calling them out but he follows it right up with a prescription to heal them and in doing so he offers them counsel and commands and promises to display his heart to them and let me just walk you through those things verses 18 to 21 what does he say to them to a church in this condition his counsel in verse 18 is this I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined by fire. White garments, buy from me that you may be clothed. Salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. So he is advising them to get what money can't purchase. Using language they understand. The language of commercial business transaction. They understand banking and finance. Jesus is saying, I want you to do your business with me. Buy from me what you can't get with money. Get from me what I give to you freely, but make sure you get it. In other words, I want a real transaction with you. I want you to truly receive and become possessors of what only I can give and yet I give freely. Make sure you get it from me. Just as Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come buy wine and milk without money without price. And so he takes these three industries, banking and and, and garment industry and medical care industry, and he says, you think you're rich, get my riches. You think you're clothed, get my white garments. You think, you see, get I salve from me. And so to be a little bit imaginative, we might say, thinking of the culture of Northwest Arkansas, an economy dominated certainly by Walmart, J.B. Hunt, and Tyson, we might say to ourselves, you think you're well-stocked? Your spiritual house is empty. Do your shopping with me, Jesus is saying. You think you're going places, but you're spiritually stranded. Hitch yourself to my transport, and I will take you to the Father. You think you're well-fed on meat but you are spiritually starving. You need food for your soul that only I can give you. Let me be meat to your soul. That's what the kind of thing Jesus is doing with them, this kind of language. Get it from me. And then his command, so repent and be zealous. Be zealous. Uh, um, and as we've said, where do you get it? Where do you get hot heartedness for jesus you get it from him he's the fountain of all these things as augustine uh, prayed is, is said to have prayed lord command what you will and give what you command you have all these needs and you can't manufacture one of them for yourself come to jesus to get them why go to him because he loves you look at verse 19 those whom i love I reprove and discipline. If Jesus cared nothing for you, he would say nothing to you. If Jesus cared nothing for them, he wouldn't offer himself to them, but he loves them. He loves them faithfully. And so he says, come, come. Such a beautiful appeal of his own heart. In, in, in the strongest word of rebuke, he, he just uh, directly, And straightforwardly says, I love you. I want you to love me. Get it from me. And notice his offer in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Why are they lukewarm? Because they're so distant from the source of their heat. Why are they distant? Not because he left them, but because they shut him out. And he is saying, he's saying to them, I am continually knocking at the door. Will you open the door? This language of an open door and coming in is, uh, has echoes in the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, where there's the love of the bridegroom for the bride. In which the bridegroom stands outside the bedchamber, knocking, waiting. Waiting for his wife to admit him. Saying to her, open to me my sister, my love. Waiting for the wife to admit him to complete their love in the communion of the marriage bed. And Jesus is saying, I am knocking at the door of your heart to have relationship with you in all its fullness and intimacy. I have such affection for you. He is saying, I want to, to, to change the metaphor, I want to I wanna sit at your table and eat and feast with you. And I want you to feast with me. That's what he's saying to them. I want to share life. And so he invites himself to dinner with you. Yeah, I, knew, I, I do that a lot with people. I invite myself to dinner. Uh, I I do that. I realize it's rude to do that. It's considered rude to do that. It's not rude for Jesus to do it. It's considered certainly rude to invite yourself to other people's homes or out to eat. But I'm a pastor, and uh, I invite myself regularly uh, to share meals with people. My favorite ones are to invite myself to weddings. Weddings always have a good feast. And I've got all these college students getting married and I will, they'll, they'll tell me they're getting married and I'll say, send me an invitation. I want an invitation to your wedding. I want to be at your wedding, right? I want to, I want to share the joy and the celebration with them and I want to stand around that table and have a drink and some good food. And I, I want to share life with them and I hope in sharing the joys with them that they will also let me in when they're in trouble. And that we can share real life together. That's what Jesus is saying. I want to share real life with you. I'm eager to be with you. And then notice his promise in verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. John Stott says, if we allow Christ to sit with us at our table, he will allow us to sit with him on his throne. That is an amazing promise to a church that was wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked, self-deceived, self-sufficient, self-righteous, and self-deluded. He holds out his hands to you and says, I love you. Get salvation from me. Oh, may we do business, and eat dinner with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on our souls. We are not half as zealous as we ought to be or think that we are, but grant that we might day by day long more to be in love with you who have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, let's close in song. It's a song we often sing um, after we've confessed our sins to acknowledge the goodness of the gospel, but the words are particularly appropriate. Uh, Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, out of my shameful failure and loss, Out of my unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come. I come to thee. Let's stand and sing.